Nicole, I have some fantastic news for you. Oh, Raleigh, what's up? Well, you know how you're always talking like bop, 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 bop about climate change all the time? Uh-huh. Well, it turns out climate change is caused by CO2 in the atmosphere, but CO2 is plant food. Therefore, climate change is actually good. Oh, well, it's good to know that my houseplants are going to start thriving right as my house gets swept into the ocean. You know, Raleigh, a lot of the climate deniers that we have featured thus far on our podcast are men. Mm. And as a feminist and somebody who wants equal representation for women, Uh I wanted to kick this podcast off with a little bit of misinformation slash disinformation from a woman Uh, for a change. Awesome. Only two genders. Nicole. Got it. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) This is Marjorie Taylor Greene. This earth warming and, and, and carbon is, is actually healthy for us. We've already warmed one degree Celsius. And do you know what's happened since then? Here, let me tell you. We have had more food grown since mm. then, which feeds people. We are able to, producing fossil fuels keeps people's houses warm in the winter. That saves people's lives. People die in the cold. Right. This, this, this earth warming and, and, and carbon is, is actually healthy for us. It, 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 is, it's able, it helps us to feed people. It helps keep people alive. It helps. There's, the earth is more green than it was um, years and years ago, and that's because of the earth warming. That's because of carbon. Have one more point. <laughs> if you're going to list things, have a third thing yeah, Otherwise, it's, Otherwise, you just need an and and not a comma. Uh, does does she know it's global warming, or what? What is she like trying to avoid saying global warming because it tested badly at a network or something? Mm, I don't think so. I think she just uh, just got kicked in the head think... by the biggest horse. <laughs> I think she just didn't come super prepared into that conversation. But this is a lie that we see fairly often, and it is this myth that climate change is good mm. because there's more CO two in the atmosphere. And plants eat CO2. That's what plants eat. That's what plants eat. It's, it's like the gas the all plants you can eat crave. buffet yes. for plants. Yes. And so the argument is that because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere mm. and more plants will grow, one, we'll have more food, we'll be able to feed people better, and two, the plants will suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and mitigate the level of warming that would be damaging to human health. Oh, okay. So the idea is that the greener it is, the more carbon dioxide can be sequestered in the greenery. Correct. Oh, okay. Yes. So that's the idea. Case closed. (laughs) I'm going to get out in front of it right now and say that that's not true and that at high levels of carbon dioxide and high levels of warming, plants can actually release carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. Mm, But I really want it to be true. It would be great if it were true. So Mm. many of these myths would be great if they were true. Right. It falls in that hilarious spectrum of like, there is no climate change. Okay, there's maybe climate change, but we're not causing it. Mm -hmm. Okay, there is climate change and we're causing it, but not that much. Okay, there is climate change and we're causing it and we're causing it a lot, but it's actually good. Yes. Checkmate. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, So this argument broke into the mainstream in the early 1980s with a guy named Sherwood Idso. And that name is going to be pretty prominent because he's like the guy. When you think of... CO2 is what plants eat. You should think of Sherman Itso. There's another Sherwood Itso. There's another Itso. Craig Itso. Yeah, so guy. we're going to get okay, to his okay, whole family. Right, Don't sorry, you worry. Sorry, but yes, remember the name Itso because- tree, which is greener. Now uh-huh. there's more carb- to carbon. carbon. The family tree is healthier. <laughs> so a little background on Sherwood Itso. He's a soil scientist turned major climate denier. He worked out of Arizona State University's climatology department and for the USDA Agricultural Research Service. Idso's views kind of range across the pantheon of denial, but his most famously held idea is this one that climate change is happening, but it's good because of plants. I think like his core view is mostly that he's annoyed that CO2 has been designated as a pollutant Mm. because that's what plants eat. Sure. And like, you know, he's got a little bit of a point because it like, exists in nature. Uh, it you exists know. in all of it. You know, like we, we expel CO2 every time we take a breath out. Yes. And so you can see how he's making the argument, but we're also pumping it out of coal plants. Right, so it's right. a little bit different than we all 
exhale. Right. <laughs> it's not like we're exhaling too much. It's the that we're... scale is important. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In 1982, Sherwood did so published his book, Carbon Dioxide, Friend or Foe, mm. in which he said increases in CO2 would not warm the planet, but would fertilize crops and were something to be encouraged and not suppressed, while complaining that his theories had been rejected by the scientific establishment. (laughs) Telling Um, on himself a little bit. Yes. Um, And there is a center with a cumbersome name, so I'm probably going to, for the rest of the podcast, call it The Center. The Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change, which as an acronym is... CSCDGC, which is what is t- with hard these to say. assholes not making their acronym spell words? <laughs> it's so easy. I know. You back your way into it. It's no problem. Yeah. Vowels. Vowels are the key. You gotta have a you vowel gotta in, throw there. Some so, vowels in there. So, so when I, if I ever say the center, I mean the center for the study of carbon dioxide and global change. Okay. Because it sounds like you're trying to get me to go to youth group with you. <laughs> the center. Come to the center. So the center, which he founded with his sons, this is really a family business, has received donations from ExxonMobil, the Heartland Institute, like fossil fuel companies finally came around to the idea that like we can't for sure say that climate change is not happening anymore. Um, They started picking up on his research and it started getting repeated by other climate denier academics like Sylvan Witwer and Robert Balling Jr., not to be confused with Robert Downey Jr., who, as far as I know, really believes in climate change. Yeah. He actually experienced like a pretty horrible tragedy. Um, This this guy named Thanos destroyed half the population (laughs) of the universe. We had some positive climate implications, yeah. but it's not it's not it's ideal. not the way to do it. Right. right. Yeah. Um, he also published an article called CO2 increase could benefit Earth's biosphere in the executive intelligence review. <laughs> <laughs> Call your magazine the We Are Very Smart Society <laughs> and girls think we are cute, actually. So don't even ask. Yeah, I looked it up and their current website looks like GeoCities. It's <laughs> really bad. Um And then he's also um, provided research for the Information Council for the Environment, or ICE. Ah, yes. The worst ice. (laughs) Wow. Just when you thought ice couldn't get worse. Uh, And that was was formed alongside with the Greening Earth Society, which I think... I think Sherwood was involved in the founding of in 1991-ish. And that was created by the National Coal Association, the Western Fuels Association, and the Edison Electrical Institute. Ah, yeah. And through the Greening Earth Society in 1998, Sherwood Idso published In Defense of Carbon Dioxide. Hold on a second. Maybe we should let the terrorists win. Let's just see what they have to say. Yeah. Sherwood Idso's research on, I mean, research in quotes, on the benefits of CO2 ultimately made its way into the Oregon petition in 1998, which is the main document that people point to when they say there's no scientific consensus on climate change. We'll, I mean, I imagine that we're going to do a whole episode about the Oregon petition specifically, but the SparkNotes version is they faked a bunch of documents to look like legit scientific output, and it claims to get 17,000 signatures, but they're mostly from non-climate scientists. It's mm. it's when people are like, there's not a consensus. This is the petition. This is the document gotcha. that they signed to pretend that there's no consensus. Man, the the way that we've like railed through thirty hacky groups, <laughs> it it sounds like you're setting up an incredibly complicated board game. <laughs> I'm just like, which one of these groups do I need to remember? Which one can I forget forever? I've actually, I think I've heard of almost every single one of these groups in various other. Research, deep dives. Yeah. And you don't need to remember any of them really other than Sherwood Idso's research on carbon dioxide has made it into all of these places and and been used. He's their guy. He's their guy. You need a guy to say that carbon dioxide is actually really good to put in the atmosphere. You go to Sherwood Idso. Yes. He's the guy. And we'll get a little bit more into him in a second, but I want to give you an idea of what the genesis of this looked like. Um, Mm. And so this is a clip. This is the whole video is like 30 minutes long. So we're just going to watch the intro. Spin it, baby. (laughs) And it's called The Greening of Planet Earth. And it was produced by the Institute of Biospheric Research, which is like run in some capacity with Idso's wife, but I couldn't find a ton of information on her. Like I said, it's this is really a family business. So Mm. Idso's wife like produced this or was involved with the 
institute in some way. But also Idso himself was president of the Institute of Biospheric Research. And this video was funded by the Western Fuels Association. And it was meant to be like a political play in conjunction with the sequel. What we're about to watch is from 1992. And they made another one in 1998. It was distributed to journalists and congressional members to influence policy and opinion. So this is 1992's The Greening of Planet Earth. It's kind of nice. Dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Western society is primarily agricultural and commercial. The concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is 270 parts per million. And then, factories spring up across the countryside and industrial towns grow around them. We begin to burn fossil fuels in large quantities. And then burn more. Okay. The carbon dioxide level of the air rises. Oh, Model T. In a plane. The level rises again. Then again. The 1950s. The concentration of carbon dioxide in the air is 315 parts per million. Still more fossil fuels are burned. More and more carbon dioxide is emitted into the atmosphere. This is my favorite part of the soundtrack. More industrialization. I mean, it's kind then of a cool, more, funky soundtrack. More carbon dioxide, then more. Uh-oh. The year 2085. The atmospheric level of carbon dioxide has doubled to 540 parts per million. What kind of world have we created? A better world, a more productive world. Plants are the basis for all productivity on Earth. They're the only organisms that can utilize the sun's energy and create matter, food. And they're going to do that much more effectively, much more efficiently. With a doubling of CO2, why cotton growers... It's nice of these guys to uh, give each other their glasses. I know. Everybody has the same glasses in the video. <laughs> it's like everybody's got Warby Parker glasses now. And they're really big, like, late 80s, early 90s right. glasses. With a doubling of CO2, why cotton growers can look forward to yields that are 60% and more greater than what they are at uh, present day levels. For citrus, it would be a very, very positive thing. <sighs> you can tell they like, she mostly disagreed with everything thing oh, they asked her. We'll get to that. Okay. In terms of plant growth, it's, it's nothing but beneficial. We would expect a world in which crop plants would produce about 30 to 40 percent more than they currently are producing. A doubling of the CO2 content of the atmosphere will produce a tremendous greening of planet Earth. And then they do the title card, The Greening of Planet Earth, wow. because he said the title of the video. I shall call you the Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes. So this is this is just the intro to mm. a very long video about how great carbon dioxide is. That man at the very end was Sherwood Idso himself, the most soft-spoken of all of them. Now, what's interesting about this video and the other one that came out in 1998 is that several of the scientists were duped into appearing. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, it seemed like it was like a hostage video with that lady. So it, these are just the quotes that I could find. I couldn't find anything from, uh, I think her name is Mary Bracke or Bracke. I couldn't find anything from her specifically, but um, Dr. Lewis Ziska, a plant psychologist, sorry, psychologist. Dr. How do you feel about being a corn? <laughs> Dr. Lewis Ziska, a plant physiologist who worked at the USDA at the time, said, basically, I was in the dark. I did not know who they were. I was only doing it because my boss said, oh, there's a film crew here. And I don't know if his oh, boss fuck. was... Idso, because Idso also worked at the USDA. Oh. I don't know. I think at this point he ha he has left, but I don't know for mm. sure. And then Ziska was interviewed about rice yields, and he tried to round it out uh, and said, I turned to the producer and I said, would you like to know how carbon dioxide affects weeds, which is part of why this myth is incorrect, which I'll tell you about. Mm. Uh, and he said no. I signed the release form while the USDA national program leader was standing with the producer, and I knew that if I didn't do this, he would be upset. And then Dr. James Bunce, also USDA, said, I have only the vaguest recollection of having been taped for it. And he said that media interviews at the time were not uncommon. And They're they coming were... fast and loose for Dr. Bunce, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> that guy cannot get two feet without having a microphone shoved he in his face. He was like, basically, the USDA rule at the time was like, if they want to talk to us, then like we should talk to them because it's our job to like tell people about science. And I guess TV is kind of fun. Oh, like, yeah. Wow. I mean, being on TV is fun. 
on. That's true. And then it, it was only when this reporter in this article sent him the video that he saw it for the first time and he emailed back and he said, I certainly do not endorse the conclusions they drew from those facts. What time frame was this? I think he was in the 1998 one. Oh, okay. Uh, and then Dr. Bruce Kimball, who is in this one, is a soil scientist. And he said they had about 20 or 30 questions and every one of them could be answered with CO2 is good for plants. Oh. They only asked him about his personal research to patronize him, but they didn't use any of his actual research in the final video. Wow. So they tricked scientists into appearing into like propaganda pieces like this. Yikes. And look, CO2 is an important molecule for plants. And so like if the point of the gotcha guys was to get scientists to say plants eat CO2, like they got them. You got them. Yeah. You know, like you're going to actually ask a middle school student who just took that bio unit like they would know. Yes. Um, and also an atmospheric concentration of 540 parts per million might be slightly better for the globe's vegetation. But that's going to mean like three degrees Celsius more of warming. And the most conservative IPCC estimates are like huge sea level rise, like horrible droughts, huge floods, big mega fires, like once in a generation inferno fires every year. Like this well, is bad. Here's the thing, Raleigh. There's going to be a drought and then the flood will replenish the drought area and then there will be fires, but the sea level will rise high enough that it'll extinguish the fires and it'll all balance out and also plants will love it. It's called equilibrium, okay? It's the perfect scenario. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse all fighting each other. Uh-huh. Perfect. And there, there is, as with a lot of mis slash disinformation, kind of a nugget of truth to this. But there are several claims here which are just straight up false. And I'm going to start, we're going to skip ahead to a little later in the video with our friend Sherwood Idso, because I want to talk specifically about one thing that he says. So. He's as soft-spoken as his skin looks. <laughs> as the uh, efficiency with which plants utilize water increases in the years ahead as the CO2 content rises, plants will obviously be able to grow and survive in areas where they currently cannot because of a lack of water. That means that you should see a tremendous uh, redistribution of plants on the face of the earth. In very general terms, you should see a real greening of the desert. You should see uh, grasses and, and, and small shrubs moving out onto areas where they could not live and survive and reproduce before. Then there should also be a tendency for bushes and shrubs to grow where only grasses have grown in the past. And, of course, forests should greatly expand their ranges. <laughs> Computer simulations. Yeah. Um, okay, so before we get into the big debunk, I want to talk a little bit about this claim about greening the desert real quick, because I don't know if you've noticed, but deserts are still very much a thing. So according to Nature, anthropogenic climate change has driven over 5 million square kilometers of drylands towards desertification, which is the opposite of greening the desert. They said that between 1982 and 2015, 6% of the world's drylands underwent desertification driven by unsustainable land use practices compounded by anthropogenic climate change. Despite an average global greening, so things are getting a little bit greener, anthropogenic climate change has degraded 12.6% of drylands contributing to desertification and affecting 213 million people, 93% of whom live in developing economies. Hmm. Um, so that's from Nature. The IPCC report is a little bit more complex. They basically say, we can't say for sure that desertification will increase over the entire world, but we can say for sure that some places will experience desertification as a result of anthropogenic climate change. They rate claims based on like high confidence or medium confidence. Right. And the medium confidence claims are like what they're trying to couch. And generally their medium confidence claims are not that like there's conflicting studies it's just that like not enough research has been done to say for sure right. that desertification is getting worse. And for the record, the IPCC is made up of 195 different countries that all have to agree on everything that goes into the report. Mm -hmm. So like any like even claims that one or two, you know, like a handful of countries disagree with those get stricken. They don't say anything that they're not like very, very certain of. Yes. So even something that's medium confidence. Again, I, I don't want to get into the area of right, saying right. it's definitely true, but like there's good evidence for it. And basically the IPCC report 
points to desertification being such a complex process that there are too many variables for them to accurately predict how it's going to play out right now. Um, but they do specifically mention with high confidence that areas that will see desertification are the Mediterranean, the Southwest USA, and Southern African regions. Oh, now, awesome. if you look at, I know, great the news Southwest for, USA, where yeah. we grow the fucking food that we yes, eat. Yes, we're going to get to that as well. It's a big problem. But if you look at this map that Sherwood Idso has given us in this video about like what's going to happen to the Sahara or the Mediterranean, you can see all of that shit has become green to indicate mm. the greening of the desert in this map, which the IPCC says for sure no. And NASA generally agrees with them. They also think, you know, some areas are going to experience more rain and more growth and some areas less. And it's a, a little too complex for us to say precisely where, but we've got a pretty good idea. Also, I am noticing on this map, uh, they're, they're kind of omitting an important part of the map, which is the polar caps. <laughs> because if well, you show the them... For. Well, if you show them getting green, it's like, we're going to melt the fuck out of those things. <laughs> like, let's green those yeah, ices let's green up. Antarctica. And it's like, well, that's... But we can't say that. Yeah. That's a sea level rise. So it's ju we're just going to green the good stuff. Yeah, we're only greening the desert, the part that you wish were greener. Yeah, and also, like, I guess, as we are melting areas like the permafrost and areas that used to have have colder climates that were inhospitable to plants. I think we're going to see some greening mm -hmm. involved in those areas. Green is not food. You cannot just eat any leaf you find. <laughs> we are not brontosauruses looking for tree stars. Yeah. We're a very specific group of crops that humans eat. Yeah. And that band, actually, this is like a great, I remember seeing somebody do this and it was like so fucking perfect. Okay. So there's like a, a habitable band for crops. Imagine uh -huh. a globe or a ball or something. You can put your fingers around the habitable band for crops. And as that shifts up, because that's how desertification works, mm -hmm. that gets smaller because that's how oh, fucking globes yeah, yeah, work. That's... So like as, you, as we are pushing the habitable band for where we can actually grow the crops that feed all of the people – we are reducing the physical size of that. So yeah, the idea... circumference closer to the top of the globe is right. smaller than the circumference of the equator. Exactly. And guess what? Fucking p other people live there. <laughs> like these are places where we do not have farms set up. We don't have yeah. irrigation set up. We have like so much infrastructure to run our farms. Like I don't give a shit if it's greening in the poles. We're not growing corn in the poles. I mean, ironically, Greenland is one of the places that is like you're seeing melting snow, melting glaciers, and Greenland might get greener. And then how are we supposed to have the fun fact that we tell second graders of, you know, Greenland is actually mostly icy and there's more green in Iceland. We're going to have lots of new fun facts to tell second graders, like do not go outside <laughs> after about 10 a.m. or before 2 p.m. And that the, the, the death vultures <laughs> that are constantly swirling over your grandparents' house have not yet picked the carcasses clean. <laughs> So it's not safe to play. You know, there's, I got a lot of, uh, I got things we can tell second graders. Hey there, a little inside baseball. We record this very podcast at the Climate Town office. And if you're not familiar with Climate Town, it's a YouTube series we make for as cheaply as possible. And that means schlepping our camera equipment all over New York City. Yes, our backpacks are full, and the gear we reach for every time is peak design. That voice you just heard is Ben Bolt, the executive producer of this podcast and of Climate Town. That's right, Riley. I mean, this is an ad, but we are genuinely loaded with peak design gear, from backpacks to sling bags to camera accessories. And by we, I usually just mean Ben. Ben literally has like seven things from Peak Design on during any given shoot. Yeah, really. I mean, they make good stuff. Uh, my freaking phone case from Peak Design. My phone charger on my desk. That's Peak Design too. My out front bike mount that I can put my phone on. Guess what? Peak Design. You know that little tripod we use on Climate Town shoots? The little travel tripod? The little travel tripod. They got organizers. They got straps, clips, duffel bags, everyday bags. And they're not f***ing around. Peak Design gear is guaranteed for life, whether you buy it firsthand or tenth hand. And they can make that kind of commitment and not go broke because they build stuff to last. As my father would say, it's built like a brick shit house. And now I'm hearing it out loud, that term is a little dated. Peak Design is a certified fair trade B Corp that prides itself on recyclable materials and it lobbies lawmakers in D.C. for environmental legislation. 
They're also the group who nominated Climate Town to be an environmental partner with 1% for the planet. So double thank you. And they also have been a podcast supporter of ours from day one. And also, also, they just make really good stuff. So go to peakdesign.com slash playbook. That's P-E-A-K design.com slash playbook for 20% off some of our favorite products and a picture of Ben on set dripping with Peak Design gear. I'm literally going to try to put as many pieces of Peak Design gear as I possibly can into one picture. I'm glad we just got health insurance because Ben's back is going to be demoed. But not because the Peak Design stuff is heavy. The other shit that we put inside it. Well, in bulk, it's heavy. If you if you stack enough all... peak design stuff, yeah, okay. I'm but not saying it's sweet, heavy gear. They got a it's sweet good shoulder gear. strap. It really takes the weight off your it's shoulder. It's gonna crush you to death. If that's how I gotta go. Sayonara. If you're anything like me, you get kind of bummed at the thought of your bank loaning your hard-earned money to fossil fuel companies to build more oil and gas infrastructure. And not like a little bit. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars in financing every year. If you'd rather know your hard-earned cash is staying out of the fossil fuel industry's oily hands, look no further than Atmos Financial. Atmos boosts your savings when you set up automatic donations to pre-approved nonprofits, offers fee-free personal business and joint savings accounts, and cash back on environmentally aligned purchases. Best of all, your money will not go to help oil and gas. A lot of other people still will, but yours, my friend, is off limits. You can't have it, oil and gas. And for the record, I genuinely use Atmos. I got the card in my wallet, and I signed up when I was quarantining for 10 days for getting Omicron at a pool hall in England. Assuming you're not listening to this podcast ironically, Atmos Financial is putting your money where your mouth is by providing a climate-friendly solution to customers concerned about what the deposits in their bank account are funding. So head on over to joinatmos.com playbook to sign up and make a difference with your dollar today. Nicole, the world of climate activism has not been racking up a ton of W's lately. What? Yeah, I hate to be the one to break it to you. Oh, boy. But it's officially time to chalk one up for the good guys. Because thanks to the work of a bunch of climate activists, the U.S. government has officially paused the permitting of new liquefied natural gas, or LNG, export facilities. New facilities will now be required to factor in the local impacts and climate implications of building a bonanza of new natural gas infrastructure across the country. Man, really taking a swing on the word bonanza there. I wanted to put a little top spin on it. All right, you've probably heard a lot about that natural gas project CP2 or Calcasieu Pass 2 getting stopped. This was that. The decision stalled CP2 and a bunch of proposed LNG infrastructure that would lock us into untold decades of additional carbon emissions, methane emissions, and your favorite, Nicole, regular old-fashioned pollution. This LNG pause was brought to you by the blood, sweat, and tears of climate activists and advocacy groups who have shown that getting loud about the climate crisis can actually lead to real-world results. Now, this is hardly the final nail in the natural gas industry coffin, but it's a great step in the right direction for the climate and for the frontline communities who are threatened by these new LNG facilities. I mean, how dare they have houses where the LNG wants to build? It's going to take a lot more of these steps to meaningfully cut emissions, protect our public lands, and ensure that American families have access to clean energy for the long haul. So let's take the win and keep fighting for climate-focused policy at every level of government. This message was brought to you by our friends at Climate Power. For more information on LNG policy and what you can do to get involved, visit climatepower.us slash action hub. That's climatepower.us slash action hub. To be clear, we're not necessarily staring down like a Mad Max future where everything is desert. That's not necessarily what desertification means. But just to bring it back to Idso, that dude claimed we're greening the desert and that's not what's happening. The Sahara is not getting greener. The Southwest USA is not getting greener. Mm. So these videos come out. Sherwood Idso is doing a bunch of his research. And at this point, either he formally starts to recruit his family or they're interested in joining the family business or whatever. <sighs> he makes some audition. Yeah, <laughs> he makes some audition. They have to do a little tap routine and 16 bars of a song. Um, so let's talk about his lineage. Let's talk about his progeny a little bit. So Craig Idso is the president and chairman for... The Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change. He has, at this point, taken up his father's quest to prove that carbon dioxide is environmentally beneficial. And he also has received significant amounts of funding from the fossil fuel industry, although it does primarily go through the center. So I don't think anybody's writing a check to Craig Idso directly. But he's gotten money through his work with Peabody, which is the biggest coal. Of course, Peabody yeah. Coal. Peabody Coal and the Heartland Institute. And But Peabody Coal is freaking bankrupt. Oh, yeah. And actually, the reason that we know that he got money from Peabody Energy is that in their bankruptcy filings, um, oh. the CSCDGC was listed as a creditor got it. to them. That's pretty fun. That, yeah. Like when 
when companies go bankrupt, we just get to see all this stuff. Yes. It's like, it's like that's, that should happen. If you go bankrupt, it should be an immediate open house. Yeah. Anyone gets to walk in. You subscribe to Quibi. <laughs> oh, and also Craig Edso served as the director of environmental science at Peabody Energy. Then in 2014, Craig published a new report uh, with all of the same old research with the Heartland Institute, and that got more attention. Now, I do want to have you read this section, which is a little bit of a tangent because I think it's funny. But in the in our previous episode, we talked about how like the climate deniers all contradict each other. Mm. And as this was all coming out, the Heartland Institute sort of couldn't get on the same page about no, how climate change was. Come on. So just read that highlighted section for a little bit of Heartland infighting. This article is called Climate Change is Good for You, says ultra-conservative Heartland Institute by Suzanne Goldenberg from The Guardian. But Idso's arguments do not appear to have entirely convinced the people at Heartland, who seemed divided on Tuesday as to whether climate change was occurring or good for the planet. Oh, yeah, because he's like, oh, no, climate change is happening, but it's good, really. Yeah. And they're like, no, it's not happening, and it's bad if it was. <laughs> and like, okay, well, let's compromise. It's not happening, but if it were, it'd be good. Yeah. Okay. Fred Singer, a retired physicist, told the press conference in Washington, D.C., there was no warming. There is a consensus that there has been an increase in temperature, but people now agree it has nothing to do with carbon dioxide, he says. What the fuck? <laughs> Let me read that again, and this time I'm going to try to not, not feel like an idiot reading it. Fred Singer, a retired physicist, told the press conference in Washington, D.C., there was no warming. Quote, there is a consensus that there has been an increase in temperature. So there's no warming, but there is an increase in temperature, which That's is somehow different from warming. <laughs> That's not warming, Nicole. That's an increase in temperature. Okay? Get, okay? It's not warming if it's just an increase in global temperature. But people now agree it has nothing to do with carbon dioxide. It's not warming. It's just hotter, but it's not carbon dioxide. <laughs> Joseph Bast, who heads the Heartland Institute, admitted a human factor in climate change, but said, it is very small. The bigger impact is the increase in carbon dioxide. As for Idso, he maintained any amount of climate change was for the good. If you are a plant, you are going to recognize that higher carbon dioxide concentrations are better, he said. A little bit of warming is good for the planet. So these dudes God. are all climate deniers, but they can't get their stories straight. I mean, this is, I'm so glad, I, I wish this would have happened, like, on camera. Yeah. And you just make them get on the same page. And it's like, okay, everybody, raise your hand if you think climate change is happening. And then Idso raises his hand. Okay, raise your hand if you think CO2 is good for plants. And then maybe maybe, maybe two, maybe all of them. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now raise your hand if you think CO2 is actually increasing. And then just Idso. Yeah. They disagree with each other more than they disagree with mainstream climate change. It's wild. Raise your hand if you think temperature rising is the same thing as warming. Yes. Right. And then who knows who would raise their hands? Yeah. Now, here's the problem with your gas range. Uh, it will not heat up, but the temperature will get very high. <laughs> Um, okay, so that's Craig Idso. Keith Idso, his brother, also Sherwood Idso's son. He contributed to the work of both the brother and the father, but he seems to largely have been forgotten after his early contributions to climate denialism. Our researcher, Knut, found what we think is his Instagram, and he's just really into swing dancing now. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. <laughs> I hate that I think that, but that makes perfect sense. And what's fucked up is I like swing dancing, too. I know you do. There, it, there was a real phase in our high school where, like, everybody was into swing dancing. Yeah. I don't know That why. is weird. Because this would have been a also after, like, the swingers era, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy stuff. That would have been the early 90s. Regardless. Uh, sounds like you're very into swing dancing, too. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny references. I am into the works of John Favreau, and that's it. Um... So he's he is a teacher. He's like a fifth grade science. I don't know if he's just a science teacher or if it's he teaches. When I was in fifth grade, we just had one teacher for everything. Um, the main thing that I can find out about him is that as part of teaching fifth grade, Keith Idzo did an experiment with his fifth graders that has now like spread to the curricula at other schools. Mm. Uh, in 1998, Keith Idzo, vice president of the center and a school teacher, did an experiment with his fifth grade science class. The lesson, which demonstrates that plants need CO2 to thrive, has been taught in other classrooms across Arizona. And you don't need to do that experiment because yeah. we already know that plants need CO2 to thrive. So I guess here's, here's where the burden of proof is. Do plants do better with a ton of extra CO2 around? So we are going to answer that. The short answer is 
excess CO2 can help plants grow and particularly helps them when water is scarce. Mm. But there are limits on that. That's not the whole story. Gotcha. So again, nugget of truth. Um, Keith Idso in 1995 testified on behalf of the Western Fuels Association in St. Paul, Minnesota in favor of coal power plants. So the whole Idso clan has received financial benefit from fossil fuel companies, mostly through the center. They received an undisclosed amount through Peabody. Between 2000 and 2003, they received $55,000 from Exxon, $49,500 to the ASU Office of Climatology, which is... Couldn't get 50K, huh? No, they- <laughs> well, there was a $50 processing or a $500 processing fee. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> processor is rich. But it went to the ASU Office of Climatology, which is Mm. they're linked to, they've served on chairs there and stuff. And then the funding really picks up around 2009. You got money from Exxon, the Donors Capital Fund, the Koch Brothers, Murray Energy, Heartland again. Uh, Sherwood himself is always like pretty cagey about his funding. I think he's a little smarter about it than his sons, both in terms of its source and how much he received. I couldn't find a primary source on this, but according to an Old Mother Jones article, the ASU Office of Climatology received over $1 million from the fossil fuel industry. Again, I don't have a primary source for that. But I do have a primary source from the Heartland Institute where they released an internal memo saying, quote, funding for selected individuals outside of Heartland. Our current budget includes funding for high profile individuals who regularly and publicly counter the alarmist AGW message. At the moment, this funding goes primarily to Craig Idso to the tune of $11,600 per month, which again is a weird number, but whatever. Maybe they're making up for that $500 they oh, lost yeah. from uh, the ASU Office of Climatology. So this argument that it's good for plants doesn't really evolve. It's like the global cooling argument. They just sort of resurrect the same zombie myth, um, the same talking points. Every well, it's, sto- and it's not even a myth. It's like, yes, it is probably good for plants. It's like, yes, yes. It, it is good, like... In the same way that water is good for plants. Yeah. But like, you don't, hey, but a can I have some water? For plants. Yeah, you want 40,000 gallons of water? No, I want one <laughs> yeah, glass, I want a glass of water. Of water. Um, and I think part of the reason that it doesn't evolve is because it is basically driven by the Idso family at this point. And mm. I, I do, we'll get into this in the misinformation, disinformation section, but I think they, for all their faults, I think they genuinely believe it. I think they have drunk their own Kool-Aid. Mm. Um, and so that's why they're hitting the same point over and over again. So more recently, there's a guy named Bjorn Longborg. Oh, yeah, Bjorn Longborg. Yeah, he's really been pushing this, although the arguments haven't changed much. He's Danish, and he's the founder of a conservative think tank, and he thinks that the media is, like, too apocalyptic, and he's trying to counter that with, like, reason. Unlike the Idsos, at least they have degrees in something sort of relevant. This guy's got a degree in political science. His desmog page was so long. I was like, I'm not reading this whole thing. He's like prolifically. He's like he writes a bunch of books. He does. I remember like I have a I have a neighbor who's a, a bit of a climate denier, and he like presented a book to me. He's like, Oh, I've been reading this, and I was just like, My God, like you might as well be reading the fucking Bible for <laughs> for like it's a history book. Yeah, it's it's wild, and he has received a lot of money from conservative think tanks um, and it all goes through his foundation and he claims it doesn't impact his research but he's he's been a guy who has been echoing these points for a while so the idsos are the big ones Bjorn Lomborg is now like kind of carrying the torch for them but they're not the only ones in 2015 Greenpeace did a sting operation and I'm going to have you read a couple sections of this article called Greenpeace exposes skeptics hired to cast doubt on climate science and it's basically sort of the Keith McCoy playbook where oh. these guys pretended to be like oil companies or fossil fuel companies or or representatives from their PR departments and reached out to these scientists and were basically like, hey, can you give us a little bit of a little bit of that good stuff, a little (laughs) bit of research that shows we're not the bad guys? Okay. In the guise of a Beirut-based business consultant, they asked William Happer, the Cyrus Fogg Backett Professor of Physics at God. I'm just like so shocked that this guy's name was Cyrus Fogg Backett, and they're like, let's name the department after him. In the guise of a Beirut-based business consultant, they asked William Happer, the Cyrus Fogg Backett Professor of Physics at Princeton University, to write a report touting the benefits of rising carbon emissions. The physicist was receptive to the commission and asked to donate his fee to the CO2 Coalition, a group founded this year 
to shift the debate from the unjustified criticism of CO2 and fossil fuels. The campaign group assumed another false identity, posing as an Indonesian energy consultancy to approach Frank Clemente, a retired sociologist formerly at Pennsylvania State University, to commission a report countering damaging studies on Indonesian coal deaths and promoting the benefits of coal. In both cases, the professors discussed ways to obscure the funding for the reports at the request of the fake companies. Also, in an email exchange with the fake business representative, Happer acknowledges that his report would probably not pass peer review with a scientific journal. Quote, I could submit the article to a peer-reviewed journal, but that might greatly delay publication and might require such major changes in response to references and to the journal editor that the article would no longer make the case that CO2 is a benefit, not a pollutant, as strongly as I would like. So you're not really doing a good job with the science if you yourself are like, yeah, this won't hold up under peer review. Yeah. If even one person looks at this for too long, it will explode. (laughs) So let's just say it's real and you can go ahead and donate that money. And this is also sort of a common theme because I didn't bother printing it, but like Sherwood Idso in that smart guy journal, the executive Executive intelligence review. Executive intelligence review. Yeah. In the Executive Intelligence Review, they they did like an interview with him uh, and they were talking about a book that he's self-publishing. And it becomes pretty clear. I, I mean, he doesn't say this explicitly, but if you read between the lines, it really seems like he wanted to publish a book and the publishers were like, none of this really fact checks. We don't want to publish it. And so now he's like, I decided to publish it myself. I decided. I chose to do it. The lamestream media got to my publisher. <laughs> so it's it's like when you read stuff like this, it becomes pretty clear that even though these guys are scientists or researchers, the science, and I'm doing air quotes, the science that they're doing. She's doing air quotes, people. Confirmed. A lot of them. <laughs> the science, if she, it could be she's called She's making that. her hands look like they're trying to fly away with wings <laughs> that they made out of cardboard. Now I can't That's stop. how many air quotes she's doing. Um, um, but the, whatever research or, or questionable science they're doing doesn't hold up when other scientists look at it. So is it, can I ask a question? You can what are they trying to say here? Because all all I've like gleaned so far is that they're simply making the link that plants eat CO2 and more CO2 is better for plants. This is a great transition into talking about debunking it. Okay. Um, so they're saying that CO2 is good for plants. That means, one, we're going to green the deserts, which as we've seen, we're not really going to green the deserts. Okay. In, in saying that it is, oh, the more CO2, the more plants can grow. Yes. The more new plants can it, grow, it'll take over the desert. It'll creep into the it'll desert. It'll creep into the desert. We'll be able to grow more food with less water. And as the plants grow, they'll suck more CO2 out of the atmosphere to do photosynthesis and grow. And that'll sort of mitigate any warming effect. So the process of photosynthesis is where a plant uses energy from the sun um, and combines water and CO2 to turn into sugar. And then it releases oxygen as a waste product. So sure. that's. And I mean, the sun has to go through photosystem two and photosystem one. All so, right. Yeah. Okay. It's look for the point. <laughs> this Sorry. is not, we are not having a Sorry, chlorophyll? About who knows more about, about biology and chemistry. Okay. The, right. the point is photosynthesis is energy plus CO2 plus water equals sugar plus oxygen. So the plant winds up with sugar and releases oxygen back into the atmosphere. Mm. The reason that they say that increasing CO2 will help grow plants at lower water levels is that the way that plants take in CO2 is basically by opening their stomata, which are like little teeny tiny microscopic holes in the mostly the underside of leaves of plants. And that's how the CO2 gets in. But that also means that water inside the plants evaporates out. So the longer the stomata are open, the more water escapes. And then they can't use that water for photosynthesis. So when you have a plentiful amount of CO2, the stomata can be open for less time, which means less water escapes and they need to uptake less water to do photosynthesis. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's like when my mom would get home from the grocery store... And I would get every single bag in one trip. I would load up my arms and I only had to make one trip. So I open the door one time, pop out, have every bag, and then 20, we're talking 20 bags, Nicole. <laughs> I am more bag than boy at this point. Sure. Slam and my way in the house. In this metaphor, trip. the water is the air conditioning from inside because, because you- I didn't have air conditioning. Okay. We had an exhaust fan. And that was it. We would open up a window in the basement and turn the exhaust fan on. And my dad was like, that's air conditioning. I was like, it does not fucking feel like air conditioning. 
Okay, well, then the cool air in the house is the water. And if you have all the groceries on you, then you just need to open the door real quick and less that's cool right. air gets out. It's like that. Higher but with concentration CO2. of groceries. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you. that's what it's like with CO2 and water going in and out of this tomato. So that that is like the basic level 101 explanation of how the water and greening thing works. And this has been shown to be true in limited amounts. So this is not bunk science. Increasing CO2 does have some impact on the growth of plants in conditions with lower water. So that's that's true. Now, there's a lot of reasons why climate change is bad for plants. So let's talk about those, okay? Growing plants is better with more CO2 because plants eat CO2. And that's true, but often the limiting factor is nitrogen. Nitrogen is the active ingredient in fertilizer. That's like why you put fertilizer down. Um, and fertilizer is like its own fossil fuel nightmare. It's fertilizers made from natural gas, but we'll, that's a topic for another episode. Um, but if CO2 increases and nitrogen stays the same, then you're limited by the amount of nitrogen in the soil. Mm. Um, and we know this at least partially because of an experiment where scientists went to a forest plot. They artificially doubled CO2 and they did see an increase in productivity about 23 percent. But, quote, that effect significantly diminished over time due to a nitrogen limitation. Mm. So there is some truth to it. But unless we dump a bunch of fertilizer everywhere, it, it, we're only going to benefit so much. Right. And that's that is in the absence of water. Correct. So it sounds like, oh, if you if you are removing water and increasing CO2, all other things being equal, you it might balance itself out. It might balance itself out, but but again, you're then limited by nitrogen. Right, right. So it's it's a necessary but not sufficient component in plant growth. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, the other thing is, so if you remember way back to the beginning of the podcast, Marjorie Taylor Greene was talking about how we can feed more people. It's more food. That's what we use to feed people. Great analysis. There's a lot of evidence to indicate that Food grown at higher levels of CO2 is actually less nutritious. Yeah, I heard about that. Yes. And I'm going to have you read a section of this article called Ask the Experts, Does Rising CO2 Benefit Plants? And I don't know if our listeners at home have heard of this rule of thumb, but in general, if there's a question in a headline, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so does rising CO2 benefit plants? Uh, I'm going to have you read this section right here. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing. All right. Rising CO2's effect on crops could also harm human health. We know unequivocally that when you grow food at elevated CO2 levels in fields, it becomes less nutritious, notes Samuel Myers, principal research scientist in environmental health at Harvard University. Food crops lose significant amounts of iron and zinc, and grains also lose protein. Myers and other researchers have found atmospheric CO2 levels predicted for mid-century, around 550 parts per million, could make food crops lose enough of those key nutrients to cause a protein deficiency in an estimated 150 million people and a zinc deficit in an additional 150 million to 200 million. Both of those figures are in addition to the number of people who already have such a shortfall. A total of 1.4 billion women of childbearing age and young children who live in countries with a high prevalence of anemia would lose more than 3.8% of their dietary iron at such CO2 levels, according to Myers. So, yeah, if the main argument is that we're going to be able to feed a lot more people and it's going to be good for, like, the agricultural economy, that's not even really necessarily true. Like, sure, we'll have more food, but our food is going to become less nutritious, if that were even possible in America. Got em. But seriously, that does suck. <laughs> um, OK. Also, uh, remember how we were talking about desertification earlier in that mm. IPCC report that that tried to make very conservative estimates? Mm -hmm. The high confidence estimate that they felt good standing behind is that the southwestern United States is getting drier, which include places like California, which huh. is where we grow a ton of our food. Oh, bummer. Yeah. So if that's not greening and food is green... <laughs> and we eat green food. Yeah. And that's not food. Yeah. Then I guess it's not getting hotter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is this actually reminds me of one of my biggest pet peeves about the climate crisis where people are like, oh, yeah, the planet's getting destroyed. And other people are like, the planet's going to be fine. OK, we can't destroy the planet. And it's like we didn't fucking mean we're going to physically blast apart planet Earth. Obviously, people are talking about how humans are going to be interacting with the planet. And maybe higher levels of CO2 are positive for the concept of vegetation and plants. But that is breezing over the unfathomably 
negative impact that that will have on human society. It's also sort of brushing past the fact that it's going to be very unequal. Mm. And that also implies that like the places where farming is not as industrialized as in America, who will suffer more from climate change, are are going to be just as well off as we are. But that's not true. I mean, if you look at like Syria is probably the most famous example of like a lot of crops failed and people moved into the cities and that like caused the Syrian refugee crisis. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's there was mm, complicating factors as well. But like because some crops will do well somewhere doesn't mean that all crops are going to do well everywhere. And the places where the crops don't do well are going to really suffer. And this is like we're using the word crop, but they're always using plants. You yeah. know, like there's like an interesting rhetorical trick that's going on here where like theoretically we love when plants do well, but we love when certain plants do well. If and they can make us money. Yeah, I mean, or like feed us, you know, like we don't really get like plants doing well is more of a bellwether of like an ecosystem Mm -hmm. functioning. And we live in a certain ecosystem, like we live in a band of a certain ecosystem, like prehistoric Earth, the crops were doing incredibly well, like 600 parts per million CO2, 700 parts per million CO2. This is a deeply vegetated world, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have humans on it because humans couldn't fucking survive in this kind of environment. (laughs) It doesn't seem to be about plants thriving generally. Mm. So that's like sort of the debunk of the process itself, the process by which plants eat CO2. But the other important thing to remember is that even if plants like CO2, they don't like the other effects of climate change. Mm. Bunch of annoying libs talking on the media all the time. (laughs) They don't like that. It is true that Plants generally like things warmer on the whole, but again, the Earth's average temperature isn't the temperature that individual plants experience. And once you get over a certain point of heat, that's not good for plants. According to Columbia, which is your alma mater, heat makes the enzyme Rubisco less efficient, which is what turns carbon dioxide into sugars during photosynthesis. At really high temperatures, it can deactivate completely. Now, there's some evidence that nitrogen fertilizer can, like, mitigate losses from Rubisco. But once you really crank up the heat, it's a losing battle because Rubisco is just turned off. Mm. Yeah. And also, like, climate change doesn't just make things uniformly hot. It also, like, disrupts a lot of the weather patterns. So mm-hmm. you got a farm in California and then oh, it's it's, you know, November and an unseasonably cold weather pattern crops up and freezes at your crops. Like yep. you, we all remember when Texas lost power because of like freak winter storms. Mm-hmm. These are these are events that have a very negative impact on crops. Like crops are yes. not as hardy as they would need to be in order to like like in the same season survive a freeze, a fire and a flood. Right. The big 3 Fs. The fuzz. Yeah. Okay. Freeze, fire, flood, um corn, <laughs> soybeans, <laughs> Rhubarb. <laughs> freeze I, corn, obviously. I, yeah, you freeze corn. I think you flood soybeans. Rhubarb. Oh, okay, flood rhubarb and fire soybeans. Wow, I don't think, you I don't dirty think, dog. Yeah, I don't know. Another thing is that a longer growing season means plants use more water because they're alive longer. They have more time in the year to soak up more water. So even though they're technically using less water for photosynthesis, they still end up soaking up even more water than they would have needed just regularly because they're growing for longer. So that means less runoff to lakes and rivers, Mm. which creates growing problems for other plants as well as like we need water to drink, (laughs) which is a problem. Also like hotter temps bake the soil. Yeah, that's my next point in the outline. Sorry, sorry, sorry. When soils are dry, plants become stressed and they don't absorb as much CO2. So that limits photosynthesis and that also sort of counters the point that people try to make of like, well, if there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere, then plants will eat more of it and suck it out and we don't need to worry about warming. Because if the soil's dry, they won't do that. Warmer winters also mean that pests don't die off. And oh. pests are like a big problem for crops. And then also- um, Pests are actually good. <laughs> so I have a new institute for- The Institute pest for Pests. Saving and also money bribes. You shouldn't use the word bribe in your institute. Mm, or I'll use it twice to cancel it out. Bribe bribes. <laughs> Great. Um, and it's not just a problem of the pests that like are- already issues with plants. As the temperature changes, that will increase animal migration into like cooler zones, which means you're potentially introducing new pests into areas that didn't have them before and don't have any sort of mechanism to 
fight them off. Mm. Um, so they're at greater risk of pests. Weeds also thrive at higher levels of CO2. And it took me a long time to like kind of wrap my head around why weeds are better at taking up CO2 than like the crops were trying to grow. And what I ultimately realized was like I was thinking egg chicken and it's actually chicken egg where weeds have been successful and thrived and lived because they are better at uptaking CO2 and nutrients from the soil Mm. and stuff. Mm. So with more CO2, the weeds grow bigger, take more of the nutrients out of the soil and either outcompete the crops and kill them altogether or at the very least make them way less nutritious. Mm. So like, so crops are plants that we are helping along at every step of the way yes. and weeds are like the the redheaded stepchild <laughs> yes. and yet they're still around which weeds means they're the like roaches in, of plants yes they're the, they're the they're the mutts of plants where yeah. they're just like you know a mutt can eat a tin can and be fine and like a, <laughs> a french bulldog will choke on its own shadow or something yes yes that is basically exactly what it is um also increases in temperature speed up a plant life cycle so that a plant matures more quickly so it has less time for photosynthesis and then consequently it produces fewer grains and smaller yields again this is the kind of thing that it's like a little bit tough to do like a real world experiment for we won't see the full impacts of that until we are at a point of climate change where it starts to have real impact oh, awesome. on crops. <laughs> so we'll just know then. That's fine. So we'll know then. Also, like you were saying, extreme weather puts all plants and crops especially at risk. Although, again, that's another one that it's like the IPCC thing where like some areas are really going to suffer and others might benefit or be fine. So it's a little bit hard to predict. But the thing about the huge agricultural economy in America is like you really need to be able to predict it. Right, right. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of outlets that depend on food to one, run their business and two, feed people. So you need to know like how much you have and have some idea of like how much you're going to be able to harvest. But also significantly, we've talked a little bit about the impacts of heat on plants, but I wanted to save this for the end because it, it really to me is the biggest argument about like why more CO2 and therefore more warming, despite whatever the disagreement was at the Heartland Institute. Uh, Not any more temperature, <laughs> but quite a lot of more warming. More warming is is really not good for plants, is that once the temperature gets too hot, plants actually start releasing more CO2 back into the atmosphere Ooh. than they intake during photosynthesis. A net expulsion. Yes. Again, we haven't had the whole world to Mm, use as our mm. laboratory, but at least in controlled settings, this is like a demonstrable phenomenon. But surely like most of the CO2 that a plant is intaking, it is transforming into sugars or cell wall or root structure or actual physical structure of the plant. And once it's part of the plant, it can't expel that CO2. That's like a fixed solid molecule. This would be at really high temperatures and it would contribute to plant die off. It would basically be like a plant sort of cannibalizing itself. A similar process sort of happens in humans. It's like a condition that gym guys get called rhabdomyolysis. People just call it rhabdo, but it's where your body starts like cannibalizing itself because you're like expending too much energy and and not eating enough. So this is not something that's going to happen tomorrow, but this is like... If you take this to its logical conclusion and this – we haven't had the whole world to use as a laboratory for this, obviously. Thank God. Um, we've, had, we've been able to like but in closed, super bake a plant. Yeah, like, that's in closed not... settings like this this has been demonstrated where basically when you turn up the temperature, that increases the process of cellular respiration, which is basically reversing photosynthesis. So mm. as a refresher, photosynthesis is when a plant uses the energy from the sun to combine – Carbon dioxide and water, H2O, to form sugars and and oxygen is the waste product and it releases oxygen back into the atmosphere. Mm. At night, plants undergo cellular respiration, just like all living beings. It's the same cellular respiration that you and I are undergoing. And it's where the plant uses the sugar that it's created to provide energy for like the necessary biological functions of Mm. the plant. And in cellular respiration... It reverses the equation. It combines sugar and oxygen to basically break up the sugar and release the energy from those bonds into the plant so it has, you know, the energy to do its biological processes. And it releases CO2 back into the atmosphere. Okay. And as the temperature increases, that process speeds up. And at really high temperatures, part of how it kills plants is that 
the plant has to like eat itself to do cellular respiration. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So again, this is not a thing that's going to happen tomorrow, but it is an endpoint if we get to like a catastrophic level of warming. Gotcha. And in a place like that's suffering a severe heat wave where a lot of crops grow, you know, if it's in the 100 degrees at night temperatures for multiple nights in a row, this is like a real problem for the growing season. Especially for more temperate crops like lettuce. I can imagine like baking that. Like you leave lettuce out on a counter, <laughs> it's cooked. You know? I don't know anything about the specifically which plants are going to benefit or be gotcha, harmed by gotcha. more CO2. But at the end of days. <laughs> yeah. What, once the plants are digesting themselves, I feel like we're going to have had bigger problems before that. Yeah. But this is it is good to know that there is that a ultimately plants aren't the solution to this. It's they can't right. under extreme heat. They simply can't take carbon mm. out of the atmosphere and certainly not at the levels that we would need to mitigate climate change. Now, there are like, oh, we'll just plant a billion trees. Right. Republicans are trying to propose planting a trillion trees right now, which, first of all, no, they aren't. <sighs> uh, and second of all, even if they pull it off, planting a trillion trees basically will lower the temperature by a tenth of a degree, which is good. Yeah. I mean, every tenth of a degree helps, but planting a trillion trees for that level of climate mitigation, which, again, they're not going to do, mm. is is like, I don't know, it's a tough sell for me. Mm. Like, I think planting trees is great. I think we've deforested a lot of land. I think we got to put more trees in for sure. But that's not a solution gotcha. unless we also like greatly reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Cool. I mean, not cool. Uncool. <laughs> Hot. Um, okay. So is this misinformation or disinformation? I think it's it's disinformation, certainly in the ways that like the Heartland Institute use it or in the way that those guys that Greenpeace did the sting operation on. I think we're clearly just fine with publishing disinformation. Again, I will say I think that Idso's believe it. Maybe you could argue that that guy, you know, Mr. Idso and Sons, Dr. Idso mania. <laughs> Maybe they're doing misinformation because I think they believe it. Certainly, it, I mean, it doesn't seem like they're they're accepting money from fossil fuel interests through their center and stuff. But I mean, probably on some level, the Idsos do believe the research that they've done. I think it would be. Well, the, the research they're doing is that plants eat CO2. The research right? they're doing that's, is plants eat CO2. That is it's unequivocal. That's true. Yes. Um, and and I don't know. I, they're, as far as we can tell, I don't know how much money exactly they've received or their center has received. Because remember, some of it is to the chair of ASU, and I don't know what they see from that or, or, mm -hmm. or what. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think on some level, like, they haven't achieved fabulous wealth through this, and they've really been aggressively pushing this for a long time. So there's some level of misinformation, but I think it's, you know, 90 percent disinformation on this one. Sure. Yeah. I, I assume that some people hear the stat, hear the disinformation stat and repeat it as misinformation. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, especially that like sting operation that we read from The Guardian. Yeah, where they were like, this isn't going to hold up under peer review, but I'm right. happy to write you a paper anyway. That yeah. like couldn't be more disinformation. Yeah, that's he may as well have written. I will do disinformation for you. Right. You want me to do disinformation right now? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's disinformation. Yeah. Um, okay, Raleigh, it yes. is Thanksgiving. Cool. Love it. It's Thanksgiving. It's uh, an unseasonably warm Thanksgiving. Oh. I don't think it's crazy. I think you're wearing, you know, long sleeves, not a T-shirt, but not a jacket. You got a nice long sleeve yeah, shirt. Yeah, you got a nice long sleeve yeah. shirt on. Uh, I'm your neighbor. Nice. I came over because I screwed up my own Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, and you guys Glenn. kindly hosted me. Of course. Uh, here we go. Well, you really screwed it up. You've, yeah. The whole basement flooded. It was bad. Yeah. Yeah. I've never cooked anything before. You know, normally my wife did it, and since the divorce, I just haven't been able to. Hey, hey, hey. That's okay. That's okay. Anyway, now I'm Glenn. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> hey, The divorce Raleigh. was not Glenn? No, that was unrelated. <laughs> okay, got it. Got it, got it, got it. Uh, oh, Raleigh, I haven't seen you since you were, gosh, what, in high school? Gosh. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's the last time. It's great to see you again, Glenn. Thanks. How the heck are you? What have you been up to lately? Oh, you know, I live in Brooklyn. I have a podcast where I talk about uh, climate misinformation and disinformation and that kind of thing. Oh, boy. Tell you what about climate change. What's up? It, this is a nice day. I, I, for one, like a little bit of climate change. It is hot as hell. It's yeah. nice out. And you know what? 
I welcome climate change because I love to garden. Wait, can I guess why? Yeah. Because you hate your life and you want everybody to have a bad time. <laughs> Whoa. You, no. Geez. I'm just guessing. Don't I'm not no, I don't no, mean no. anything, right? I'm looking forward to climate change because I like to garden. Can I guess as again? You know. No. Stop guessing. <laughs> okay, sorry, Glenn. You 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 grew up next to me. You've seen I got this beautiful garden in the backyard. I love gardening and you know what? Plants eat CO2. My garden's going to thrive. Mm, what a what a beautifully short-term way of thinking. Well, yes, Glenn, it is conceivable that additional CO2 in the atmosphere can lead to a little additional vegetation growth. But the thing about plants is they're more complicated than just CO2 means more growth. There's a lot of different cycles in, inherent to plants, including how much nitrogen they can intake, how much sunlight they get, how much heat they get. And even though they might be getting more CO2, they're also experiencing a lot more heat. This is actually going to counteract or at least confound the impact of CO2 on those plants. And when you zoom even further out, we are destabilizing the climate. And so plants are used to a stable climate. The more CO2 we put in the atmosphere, the more we destabilize the climate. We get big spikes in temperature. We get some big dips in temperature. And these are all things that are not positive for plant growth. So even though, uh, yeah, maybe the flowers are a little greener, it's actually worse for the planet as a whole to destabilize the system that's shepherded plants and crops to where they are today. I guess the flowers were pretty bad that year after a huge flood ripped through the neighborhood. That's right. These are sort of negative implications that come with CO2. So if somebody tries to convince you that CO2 is actually really good and we want more of it because it has this one positive implication, I would urge you to consider the many negative implications that come with extra CO2 and to try to weigh them in your mind. Do we want more extreme weather events, more droughts, more floods, more fires. Well, do we? Or do we want normal climate and a smaller amount of CO2 in the atmosphere? I think I want that one. That's right. The second one. Yeah. And that is us combating climate change. I agree. Now, let's go eat yams until we throw up. Sounds great, Glenn. One thing we can agree on. We love yams and we love throwing up. <laughs> Hey, you know what? I don't know why Sheila divorced you. She met a massage therapist and he's got those strong hands. The Climate Deniers Playbook is hosted by Raleigh Williams, that's me. And me, Nicole Conlin. Our executive producer is Ben Bolt and our audio producer is Gregory Haddock. Theme music from the wickedly talented Tony Dominic and artwork by Jordan Dahl. Who, yes, okay, is my boyfriend, but that's not why we hired him. We hired him because he's very good at art. And our researchers are Knut Haraldson, James Krugnail, and Carly Rizzuto. How do you feel about being a corn? 